Greetings and salutations from Times Square, crossroads of the world. This is the Muni Lowdown, produced by DebtWire Municipals, where we talk about this week's most interesting stories in the municipal bond market. And I am your host, Young Lim, desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. Good morning, everybody. Today is Thursday, January 28th, 2021. And welcome to the Muni Lowdown. Today, we are continuing our series of guest speakers on our segment called Theater Play. And today we have one of the good ones out there, Lisa Washburn. Lisa, welcome to our show. Thank you so much, John. Happy to be here. And also we have our reporter from Chicago, Illinois, Kaylin Devin. Kaylin, welcome back. Thanks, happy to be here too. All right, uh, before I'm gonna hand over the microphone to Kaylin, I'm gonna introduce Lisa to everybody who is not familiar with her in terms of public finance. Lisa Washburn is a managing director and chief credit officer at Municipal Market Analytics, where she leads the firm's consulting practice and its credit surveillance business. She is a contributor to MMA's Outlook and Default Trends publication and assists in maintaining the firm's credit impairment database. Before joining MMA, Lisa spent 20 years at Moody's Investor Service, where she was a managing director and in, the, in the public finance group and led several ratings teams. Lisa is also a member of the National Federation of Municipal Analysts, which is known as the NFMA. Lisa, welcome to our show. Thanks again, Jan. All right. So, Kaylin, I'm going to hand over the microphone to you. Sounds good. Thanks. And thanks, Lisa. It's always great to talk with you. I'm happy you're here. I'm going to start just completely off topic with GameStop. I'm talking about the Reddit traders that have caused a big flap over the last, you know, especially yesterday, but over the last 72 hours. And I'm only bringing it up because I was talking to a head, I happened to be talking, interviewing a hedge fund manager last week who was complaining that we can't short munis. And so then it got me thinking about it. Um, what if they could short munis? And I was sort of amusing myself thinking how it would be kind of funny if we were seeing that kind of action that we're seeing with the Reddit traders uh, munis right now. If we'd seen, you know, if there's a lot of shorts and then if we saw the retail guys piling in and making their bets and driving up the price of bonds for certain <laughs> municipal, <laughs> like Chicago, everybody's short, you know, you got people shorting it and then people are driving up. We love Chicago driving it up. And it becomes, so anyway, we miss out on that excitement in our sleepy little market. But it's so exciting. <laughs> yeah, it would be more exciting. It would be getting more attention on Twitter. Yeah. So let's start with uh, Young mentioned the, your guy, the MMA's default report. This is a biweekly report. It's a nice report that tracks defaults and distress in the muni market. And I want to talk about sort of what it's because you got it's so granular. And I want to talk a little bit about what it's shown you or what you've seen from it over the last year and more recently. But before I do that, I want to ask you about your process because it seems very laborious to put it together. Is it as laborious to put together as it seems? Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I actually, um, I often refer to it as, you know, putting together the default database is a labor of love. But, you know, Matt Fabian, my colleague, you know, says it much better. He says that, you know, updating the database involves daily hand-to-hand -hand combat with Emma. So, um, <laughs> right. Right? I'm familiar with that. Not daily, but I'm familiar with it. <laughs> so, yeah, but, you know, seriously, um, you know, we painstakingly open and look at all of the non-administrative event notice filings, you know, to determine whether or not there's been any sort of impairment for an issuer. So in short, what we're doing is like we create a record for each borrower that has either defaulted on a bond payment 
drawn on support or some other like non-intended or you know non-regular payment to make debt service payments, or has experienced some sort of material credit-related stress. And the latter, you know, requires a bit of informed judgment at times. And then, you know, we we track that credit and we maintain a historical record of what's happened. So we have detailed summaries, dates, and other information that we think is important to capture until the issue actually, you know, either the problem's resolved or, you know, the bonds, you know, are kind of diffused or settled or canceled in some way. In, you know, the process would be pretty straightforward if it didn't have a few major obstacles. You know, first, there's unfortunately no quality assurance done on the M filings, and many important notices will end up filed, you know, incorrectly or be incorrectly labeled. So, you know, it can be really distressing when you find the notice of a payment default buried in a successor trustee notice. I did actually find wow. that. And, you know, so it means you really do have to open a look at everything. And then, you know, yeah. there's two other real big challenges, right? So you've got two catch-all categories that I'm sure you're familiar with, the other category mm-hmm. and notice to bondholders. So, you know, those seem to be favored by filers over, you know, really taking the time to consider whether there's a more appropriate category to log the notice. And, you know, mm-hmm. there are other challenges. I don't know if you want me to, to go into them, but that's, you know, that's basically the process. Have you seen, has there been a change with disclosure from COVID? Has there been any impact at all that you've seen from COVID either? I mean, I doubt, I, I would imagine it wouldn't be like cleaner and, you know, more more proper disclosure putting in the proper categories, but has there been any impact at all that you've seen on that? Sure. You know, I, I think that when you opened that we, you know, the default trends is a biweekly publication, that was true, but now it's weekly. And that's because oh. of the impact of what we've seen. Filings have really picked up. So since COVID, there's been a substantial increase in the number of borrowers that have been moved to voluntarily provide information on the impact that COVID's having on its finances and operations. You know, and I'm really hopeful that this is the start of something good, right? That we'll see more, better voluntary disclosure in the future. And I think what really drove that, you know, one, I, I do think that issuers understand that this is a unique time and that there's so much uncertainty that you know, it doesn't really matter what last year's audit said, right? I mean, it, it matters what's happening mm-hmm. here and now and how you're managing through that. But I think that the SEC's um, legal bulletin that was followed up by a statement by former yeah. Commissioner Clayton and OMS Director Rebecca Alton were really helpful in allaying some historical concerns over providing voluntary information. So basically, mm-hmm. those communications encouraged more interim and forward-looking information and the SEC gave issuers comfort that, you know, if they were disclosing their information in good faith with appropriate caveats and disclaimers, that, you know, they, they could expect that the information and their intentions weren't going to be second guessed. Yeah, that they said, weren't going to be punished for that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But that said, while there's been a substantial, meaningful increase in, you know, filings, uh, event filings on Emma, the majority of municipal borrowers haven't filed, you know, voluntary event notices related to the impact of COVID on their operations or finances. That's not to say that they're not in, like, you know, if they come to market, they're, de- you know, they definitely put something in their OS because you can't ignore it. Right. Um, or, right. Or maybe their annual financials. But in terms of event notices, um, we, you know, we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. 
Hmm. Well, yeah, that'll be interesting to see if that's one of those trends that sort of, as they say, accelerated by the pandemic, if we see issuers getting more used to it and starting to um, starting to file more regularly. That but in any case, so there would be a good outcome. Yeah. So to move away from process and into sort of a little bit more content, if you could talk a little bit about what kind of default and distress trends you've seen over the last year, you know, if it's been focused in certain sectors, certain types of bonds that you think investors should be aware of, is there anything in particular maybe that surprised you that you've seen over the last year? Yeah, you know, you got a while. Um, anyway, <laughs> to, to, to 2020, you know, we did see the highest number of first-time payment defaults since 2012. And we've also seen support draws at record levels. So, you know, payment so far, payment defaults um, and other credit troubles have been mainly concentrated in a few of the riskier sectors. And, you know, I think that the pace that we saw in 2020 is going to continue in 2021. For the safer sectors, you know, more of the governmental type and essential services, you know, the delivery of unprecedented federal aid has been key to supporting, you know, both the economy and governmental credit quality in general. But the longer that the pandemic constrains certain sectors of the economy and the longer it takes to get federal more federal aid into the system, you know, the greater we risk that some of the weaker credits in some of the, you know, acutely impacted safer sectors will struggle. Um, I have to say that after, you know, February 5th, uh, not February, January 5th, why am I thinking of February? Going ahead myself. After January 5th, you know, I became a bit more optimistic on, you know, the provision of aid and, you know, some relief for the bond market. But, it, you know, it's still taking more time than I, I think that we would like to see. Specifically, it's no secret that the senior living sector has been really hard hit by the pandemic. But, you know, for many of the the credits that are in trouble, the pandemic was just an added stress, right, on top of an already fragile credit. So, you know, the sector's experienced occupancy challenges, lease-up troubles in overbuilt areas, thinly capitalized projects, you know, and, and, you know, whatever else is out there. Um, And now you've got the concerns around congregate living and restrictions, you know, that are affecting marketing and move-ins. And, you know, those have been really impactful. I don't think we've seen the end of this story. You know, many borrowers were um, in the space were beneficiaries of PPP loans, um, and that might, you know, have kept otherwise struggling facilities afloat. And when that's gone, there could be more troubles. Mm-hmm. And overall, you know, the trends of occupancy, you know, they continue to decline, and expenses are, you know, are higher. And I expect that they're going to be higher to stay in terms of, you know, equipment and labor costs. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You know, Interesting. Then, so, yeah, go uh, ahead. I was just going to go on to another sector, but we can talk more about. Yeah, no, that's well, actually that was my question. Um, great minds think alike. I was going to ask you what other sectors. So we've got senior living and what else? You've got privatized student housing. Um, that's been hard hit. You know, higher education's obviously been affected with fewer students and a loss of auxiliary revenues. But not having students on site means that the projects that have normally enjoyed, you know, kind of a high degree of built-in demand you know, they've sat empty or way below break-even occupancy. So, you know, I expect that there's going to be more troubles until students are back on campus. Revenues could, should bounce back in the fall, assuming that we have a more traditional fall semester for students. But, you know, there could still be strains from de-densification efforts um, if there are enrollment drops, you know, and the online model could shift some students' housing preferences. So I I think that that's, Mm -hmm. you know, that's an area that's still going to be, you know, troubled. And then you've got 
parking, you know, convention center, hotel back, anything that's entertainment related. You have IDBs, particularly in, um, in the area of resource recovery that have faltered during the pandemic. You know, many were in early stages, some just, you know, either just coming out of CAPI or out for a very short period of time, and then they had to close operations. And then, you know, my favorite are the proton facilities, right? Um, the they were protons, bankruptcy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they were struggling pre-pandemic and, you know, COVID um, just, you know, they it, it impacted their utilization even further. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I guess part of what I want to say about the whole pandemic is that it's important, like, to put in context that many of the transactions that are getting into trouble now were issued in recent years when supply was scarce and led to, you know, not only weaker covenants, but a market that was more than willing to buy into optimistic yeah. assumptions. You know, so these projects may have struggled even without the pandemic, but they certainly were ill-equipped to withstand it. Yeah, in that way, I think that the that what you see in the mini market sort of reflects a little bit of what's going on in the bigger social level. You know, where we're yeah. seeing that people that people and credits and everything that were, you know, more had thinner cushions heading into the pandemic are suffering more. Um, and sort of a maybe bifurcation, a little bit of the haves or have nots, even within the sectors you were talking about, senior living. And, you know, I know when I talk to a lot of analysts, they say, you know, kind of having to drill down into those haves and have nots within the sectors. Oh, sure. I mean, you're you're kind of stealing my thunder. I think that that's going to be one of the more visible issues that's going to, you know, that's going to come into play, you know, over the next, you know, if in the near term to medium term, right, it's going to be the growing gap um, credit gap among those credits that went into the pandemic with strong balance sheets and access to liquidity, and those that were struggling pre-pandemic. You know, you see that in higher education and non-for-profit healthcare. You know, more closures, mergers, consolidations as a result. Um, you know, and specifically for higher education, the pandemic's accelerating the financial challenges that were all already present in the sector. Mm-hmm. So, do you think we're going to see more defaults over the next, say, like twelve months, or what are we going? What do you think? I think that the pace will will remain elevated for sure. Um, you know, in terms of payment defaults, I think that you know the majority are still going to be in the you know in the traditionally more risky sectors. Um, I do think that you know bonds that are backed by narrow tax pledges, like you know the hotel, the entertainment, tourism base, those probably you know the, there may be some that will need to draw on reserves or get assistance from their parent government, and that's been happening. You know and it's been happening more than maybe I expected at the start of the pandemic. And that's actually good to see where you see, you know, parent governments either, you know, providing liquidity into the systems, providing or into the credit, providing a refinancing option for them, or, you know, in states that have programs that are allowing, you know, some issuers to defer um, their payments to state loan programs in order to create near-term liquidity. So, you know, but those could draw on reserves. I, I do think, you know, there could be, you know, a few safe sector credits, you know, that definitely, you know, that fall short and do end up, you know, in default. I'm probably a little more concerned about, you know, the, the types of non-local, non-geo credits, like they're issued by local governments that have, you know, like a backup appropriation pledge where, you know, it's for some sort of an economic development project. And it was really never intended to be drawn upon. And if the, you know, that's where we've seen trouble right. in the past. And, you know, I think that, you know, that could, that could be trouble, you know, that could lead to some problems in the future. You know, 
whether or not you know government faces its own strains and really can't whether trying to bail out a, a struggling project at the time or whether or not mm-hmm. it's just a timing issue, right? Like, you know, things are happening so quickly and they just don't have notice and the budget to actually make that make that payment in the time that it needs to. In longer term, right, like it, local governments, right, it's a delayed effect in terms of credit because most of them are dependent on property taxes. Mm-hmm. And I think that the strengths that we're seeing in commercial real estate and obviously the delayed impact on property taxes related to the employment um, issue, those are going to take longer to play out. And, you know, the, if trouble arises, it's much more likely to be credit specific than, you know, more systemic. And I, I think it would happen in areas or, you know, in credits that have, you know, concentration exposures. So, yeah, I mean, overall, the credit conditions for, you know, coming out of the pandemic, I think that we need to keep in mind that many governments are going to come out of the pandemic with more debt, fewer reserves, and a host of bold and new challenges to address. You know, so pensions, climate, cyber, mm-hmm. social justice, and equity issues. And these aren't going to be easy or cheap, right? Mm-hmm. So I think generally speaking, you know, credit quality is going to modestly weaken over the medium term in aggregate. But again, I, I do think that this is going to unfortunately be disproportionately felt by weaker credits. And and just to add to the um, of the pressures, especially with those backup pledges, you know, is the is the politics involved? Like what we see with um, you know, for for those listeners who are following like Platte County, Missouri, yeah. where they might have the ability to pay, but it's a political decision, and if they have a backup pledge on a project that's failing, um, they don't want to have to, you know, they the the politics there. They don't want to they don't want to make that payment. That's kind of an added extra risk, I think, for some investors. Sure. And we've um, seen that, you know, Black County was is just the most recent, right? We've seen it like in yeah. Heights. We saw it with Moberly. We've seen it with the Wenatchee uh, Toyota Center, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's, it, that's where the troubles happen, and they often are political. The, the golf course in, um, right. in Virginia. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it, when, when politics get involved, things get a bit more difficult. Mm-hmm, which is also what makes our market interesting. Um, so just quickly, I mean, in light of what you just said, do you think we're going to start seeing more downgrades? We, ha- I mean, it's kind um, of amazing. We haven't seen, considering what happened last year uh, in March, I mean, the sell-off in particular, but also just the, the, the wide uh, economic shutdowns and the, um, you know, the impact of the pandemic generally on revenue losses and also expenses kind of amazing we haven't seen more downgrades yeah you know um i definitely think that 2021 is going to be marked by more downgrades i you know in the beginning of the pandemic and i I think rightfully so the rating agencies you know no one knew how long this was going to be right i think back to march and i was thinking you know well by summer things will be better well by fall we'll definitely be better right and here we are we're in 2021 i'm like when is it going to be better I, I think that, you know, from that perspective, you know, I, I think that they were trying to see how, you know, how longstanding this was going to be and how much of an impact it was going to have on, on issuers overall, longer term credit quality. You know, some sectors have, you know, seen a, a significant amount of rating activity. You know, if you look at like airports or higher education, you know, those have seen elevated levels of, of downgrade activity. Um, I you know, keep in mind, right, things just take longer in our sector to make their way through. Um, mm-hmm. 
folks know it, you know, you know, it's worse, but we also have the lag in reporting. So, you know, finding out what's actually happened, you know, it takes some time. Um, so, you know, I, I do think that as more, you know, audits and financial statements are made available and as, you know, we kind of see, you know, where, where credits stand relative to each other too. You know, I, I think that, you know, as we come into the second quarter of 2021 and third quarter, I, I definitely think that you're going to start to see more downgrade activity. Hmm. So also another thing that is a little bit amazing considering what happened last year is where we're at right now with the market and um, how gangbusters the market is for everything. And we're seeing record, I think two weeks ago, we saw record inflows into the high yield, into high yield muni funds in particular, but we're on maybe our 11th or 12th week of inflows. And there's just the uh, demand for yield everywhere you go, right? As we talk um, now, and I think somebody just sent me the wire for Chicago Public Schools is um, going to market today. And I think, I don't know if they're doing, I haven't looked at it, so I don't know, but yesterday it was about 140 basis points over, which a lot of people were saying it was tighter than they thought. I mean, that's a junk rated school district. The state of Illinois, I think yesterday on its tenure had like 120 basis point spread. So it's pretty close for a sovereign state. Yeah. And a, but so my question for you is, do you think that this quest for yield has propped up some credits beyond where they should be? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, in some cases, we've even seen lenders that have continued to provide more capital to prop up credits that are already struggling or maybe who have closed operations, right? So, you know, it's important to remember that for a bond to actually get into trouble in our marketplace, right, you've got to have the project of revenue stream fail, but also the market has to say no more, right? Mm -hmm. With the lack of product and rates so low, risk-taking is definitely elevated. Um, you know, it's just hard to work against the technicals. Mm -hmm. Yep. Technically driven for sure. Right now that's where we're at. And, um, I think we are in sort of, we remain in a time of transition or at least on high uncertainty about fundamentals. Yep. So, um, and then when you have these strong technicals, so I want to ask you a little bit just to move away from them. This is a topic that I wrote about this week. It's been getting some attention and I just wanted to get your opinion on whether or not you think it's something that kind of matters for muni investors. It's the, you know, New Hampshire put in that motion. They, they asked the Supreme Court if um, they want to, to, for leave to file a lawsuit with the Supreme Court. It wants the, the top court to take it up. Over its dispute with Massachusetts over income tax policy, Massachusetts has continued during the pandemic. It it enacted a, an emergency rule that allowed it to continue to collect income taxes on its income taxes on non-residents who are working remotely. And Massachusetts has like I think it's a five percent flat income tax. New Hampshire has no income tax, which it calls mm -hmm. its New Hampshire advantage. In and that's like its proper noun name for it. 14 other states have signed on. 10 are just supporting New Hampshire's position that it's the Supreme Court that needs to hear this. It's sort of unusual to have the state start the Supreme Court, which is usually an appeals court, but they did this thing called an original action. So mm -hmm. 10 are just saying that they think that the Supreme Court is the only place and in fact is required to hear it. And then four, including New Jersey, are saying that they have the same problem and that it's really important. They filed amicus briefs in support of New Hampshire's position. And they're saying billions mm -hmm. of dollars of tax revenues at stake. So what do you think? How is this a credit issue? And if so, for who? For which yeah, credit? Okay, so Let's step back and it's kind of funny, right? Because um, New Hampshire is doing it because it's, you know, it's their advantage, but they're not 
going to monetarily, immediately monetarily gain right. from the action. You know, New Jersey and Connecticut have a lot to gain, right? If the court were to find in favor of New Hampshire. You know, I, the, only six states, right, tax out-of-state residents. And I'm thinking that the level of work at home is probably at its peak, although it probably will remain somewhat elevated, you know, to, to historical levels. So, you know, if the, if the decision were decided in New Hampshire's favor, I guess it could have an impact, you know, big impact in the near term on a few states. But that would, you know, that would scale back a bit after, you know, telecommuting falls to its lower level. You know, I see that the, the negative impact is potentially the greatest if it were to rule in New Hampshire's favor on Massachusetts and New York, right? Because, you know, particularly in the Northeast, we've got small, you know, smaller states that, you know, involve people commuting from other states to them. Um, and it'll be most positive probably for New Jersey and Connecticut. Um, I think it's, you know, it's important to say that all of these states have fiscal pressures and the loss, you know, one's loss is going to be the other's gain. So, you know, and implications of the court that, you know, if they disrupt the status quo, you know, that's going to be painful for the states that are losing revenues. Status quo is status quo, right? So if Massachusetts prevails, you know, nothing really changes, right? But if New Hampshire uh, prevails, then then you could see, you know, a credit a positive credit impact for New Jersey and Connecticut and the like, you know, that are able to, you know, actually capitalize on the the trend towards, you know, more work from home. You know, mm -hmm. it's probably tough, right? With that trend continuing, it's probably time to think about this question anyway. It kind of reminds me of Wayfair, right? Yeah. Things are changing, right? And tech, the tax system isn't really going to be representative of what it was in the past, um, you know, what it was intended. It probably needs to be re-looked at, but, um, you know, it, a, a decision in favor of New Hampshire is going to be more disruptive in the mm. near term than, you know, to to New York and Massachusetts, then it'll just be disruptive. It'll be yeah. a lot of quite Got it. So possibly a limited for some state geos, but for those that are impacted, it, it, there is, you know, there is a lot of money at stake. It's not just the geo, right? It's not just the state because whatever happens to the state is going to affect the locals. Right, the locals. Right? So yeah. it's going to trickle you know, down. Yeah. Trickle down. Yeah. Uh, and that's where, yeah. really where I'm more concerned. You know, um, the states will do what they need to do to, to manage themselves. Um, and that often does involve cuts to locals. Mm hmm. Yeah. OK, well, I know I think, Young, you had a few you had a question or two that you wanted to weigh in and ask Lisa. Sure. Um, and speaking of New Jersey, I, I feel like I should join that amicus brief myself. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Speaking of New Jersey, uh, Kayla was asking you about that case. And I want to ask you specifically, I guess I just want to finish off with two questions. One is state specific. And then credit specific. So focusing on the garden state, uh, New Jersey, like other states, uh, as you guys were talking uh, about, let's look forward. I want to get an idea. I know um, in New Jersey, as both you and I are residents here, um, the voters back in November overwhelmingly approved marijuana use. But tech, right now, it's sitting on Governor, Governor Murphy's desk waiting for a signature. So what other avenues do states have to gain more revenue going forward with the pandemic? Yeah, well, you know, I definitely think that these, um, the quote unquote sin type taxes, mm -hmm. um, you know, 
those are going to become, you know, more widespread, right? I think New York is now talking about getting its act together to pass the legalization of marijuana, mm-hmm. sports betting, you know, I, the, all of those are, you know, modest incremental revenue streams. They're not solving any problems. Every dollar helps, but we're not talking about windfalls there. The thing, you know, I think that states are maybe going to have to start to look at, you know, where they can maybe broaden their tax, you know, their tax base. Certainly the Wayfair decision was helpful. Um, You know, it's the breadth and the, you know, and the rate. So, Maybe they're going to have to start to think about if you're not taxing services, taxing services now that we're, you know, more of a service driven economy. Maybe it's, you know, uh, increasing the, the rate on, you know, the, the tax, you know, the sales tax rate. Um, certainly, you know, New Jersey, as you know, and I know, and California and the like all have very high, um, you know, top, you know, progressive income tax. Right. Right. Um, you know, but it just, it, they're going to need to figure out what tax structure works best for them. I think that, you know, it it's almost with these sin taxes, um, you've got like a, a bump to be kind of the first adopter. And then, you know, then things start to kind of, you know, trickle down. So like your first year is your best year until your nearby states. Um, and not the first year, but the first couple of years are the best. I mean, just think about what happened to New Jersey's, you know, casino revenues once, you know, nearby states legalized gambling. So I definitely think that, you know, states are going to be on the hunt for revenue, Mm -hmm. uh, but it may, it may involve needing to take, uh, you know, a bigger picture look versus, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what additional um, previously illicit activities can now be legalized and taxed. Mm -hmm. Now, um, the last question I have is, uh, as I mentioned, a specific a credit, and I think you and I might have discussed this before about the American Dream Entertainment slash retail complex here in New Jersey. Uh, the developer is also the one sponsor for Mall of America. Mm-hmm. Retail obviously is a huge uh, has you know suffered a lot over the pandemic. I believe you've been there. I've been there personally. I think I don't know if we have different takes on it because as a as a consumer, I've gone. It's a good place for me to get out. And I'm wondering, as a bondholder, what do you think the the future is for a complex like that? You know, it's a really interesting question and no shortage of opinions on it, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, your listeners and readers, you know, just have to go back and look at a couple of things that <laughs> Kathy O'Donnell's written, right? And mm-hmm. um, it will see that I'm on record that I'm a skeptic of the American dream. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, you know, as you said, I live in New Jersey, I, mm-hmm. you know, um, I've never really understood the concept, um, you know, in terms of its scale. Mm-hmm. And we're surrounded by malls. I live three minutes from the Short Hills Mall. I know that you're in Bergen County. You've got a lot of malls up there. Yes, um, yes, yes. So, you know, we don't, like, I'm not going, you know, I find it hard to think that you're going to get traffic to travel for, like, you know, I don't know. Old Navy and um, <laughs> you know and Abercrombie, right? I, you know, right, just I, right, I just really have a hard time, particularly pre-pandemic, when you think about the traffic that were you know that were on those roads. And I don't know about you, but when I drove in, I, I just I scratched my head thinking, this is the most you know 
circuitous way to try to get into uh, <laughs> you know a facility like what happens when there's lots of people that want to get in there like I, you know I, I can't find the parking lot I'm driving in circles through you know through right. I, I just don't understand but you know so I, I kind of think of New Jersey as being you know we like to you know kind of hit on our state but like I do think that we're kind of in a unique position right we've got New York City nearby that we can go for high-end shopping and entertainment. Mm -hmm. You've got the beaches nearby. You've got, you know, outdoor amusement parks. You've got Mm -hmm. ski slopes. You've got hiking trails. You know, you just have a lot of things. I I think that New York is unique in, I just have always had trouble seeing New York tourists get on a bus out of Port Authority to travel, mm-hmm. maybe the nicer Port Authority when it's built, but yes. <laughs> um, to, to travel to, you know, a parking lot to be shuttled to the American dream with like right, you right, know, right. Their, their swimsuits and whatever else they're going to need <laughs> for a day of fun and activity and with, and with their kids. Right. Cause that's what's geared towards, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, I, I, I kind of think sitting on a bus in traffic, from the Port Authority to the Meadowlands um, in regular traffic as, you know, with a bunch of screaming kids as a nightmare. And then thinking about coming home and everybody being wet and tired is also more of a nightmare. But, um, you know, to add that bricks and mortar is hurting, as you said, you know, just look at the tenant lists that have mm-hmm. been for the American dream since its start and sure. count how many are no longer in business or, you know, have filed for bankruptcy or are near bankruptcy. Um, and then, you know, it, with the pandemic, you've got that tourism has come to a, you know, almost a halt, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Or a halt. And so it was really dependent on international travelers, right? So, you know, for it to get to the levels that it needed to in order to generate the, particularly on the sales tax side, right? The revenues that it would need to pay the bonds. You know, I think that that's, that's just, it's just going to be harder now. And then you've got the, what are the lasting effects of the pandemic on people's preferences? Are mm-hmm. you going to see people that are going to want to go to, you know, are they going to choose in the summer to go to the indoor water park if there's the, you know, or the indoor amusement park when there's an alternative to go to an outdoor one? And there are alternatives, you know, does the shopping and the, you know, the restaurant experience bring them in? You know, I just don't know if people, you know, are going to have to congregate with strangers. And the idea is that it's going to be a lot of people in close quarters. I just, you know, I just don't think that we we really know yet, you know, whether or not um, I was skeptical before and I'm a bit more skeptical now. Um, but, you know, keep in mind that the structure has nothing to do with not being able to, right? Not being able to pay isn't really a problem for these bonds because there are no defaults. So, you know, they operate based on following, you know, a very prescribed payment scheme based on cash flows that come into the project. And so, you know, to the extent that bondholders think that it will eventually turn around, they may hang in there. And certainly with Mall of America, we've seen all those pressures you were talking about on the retail side, and then they just recently restructured their loan, which Lisa, you might have talked to Kathy about that, um, that they just re- they stopped making their mortgage payments and their um, proper and paying their property taxes. And they just recently restructured it for some budget relief, mm-hmm. made it interest only through maturity. So, right. so it's sort of interesting. You know, but yeah. that's important because, you know, some of the more senior lenders to bondholders have a claim on those, you know, on the revenues coming out of the Mall of America yeah. and the West Edmonton Mall. And so, you know, keeping that 
project, you know, as, as viable as they can and, and making, you know, and providing relief so that they, you know, that that, you know, because I'm all America has been a success, right? Keeping that successful, it is critically important, right? Because there's other debt that's tied to it, too. Pretty, uh, critically important to bondholders, you mean? Oh, critically important to the, yeah, to everybody, right? Yeah. Because, you know, when you pledged a project, you know, um, an interest in a project to a senior lender, not, you know, not having that taken away from you is, you know, that's a really, that's a pretty big Yeah. And speaking of um, parking at these massive malls, a small memory of my mom and I once forgot where we parked in the Mall of America. <laughs> we, we just like parked and then didn't memorize where we parked. And then we just, we had to get in one of those little golf cart guys and drive us endlessly. Anyway. That's why I'm yeah. for technology these days, right? I just have to look yeah. at my iPhone and it says you parked. Yeah. Thank God. Oh, right. <laughs> well, you know, I, before the pandemic, when they opened up, when they said we're opening up the American Dream, I, I was I just looked at the parking fees. I'm thinking, wait a minute, I'm going to park. It's going to cost me how much? Maybe that's way to sort of, you know, <laughs> gain some small amount of revenue. You know, we'll just charge people. You know, you want to go shopping? You pay thirty dollars for the pants. Well, it'll cost you thirty dollars for shopping, for, for parking. It's like, wait a minute, what's where's the math in this? So I don't know because. If I really want a pair of khakis and look like Steve Kornacki on MSMAC, <laughs> then I'm not going to drive 40 minutes out of the way to go to Old Navy as opposed to going 20 minutes, you know, to a local mall. But you're right. It's I was more of a curiosity. Thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's, it, it, it's interesting. And by the way, I'm a huge candy fan. So I, oh. itch, I went to It's Sugar. Yes, uh, yes. And, and uh, it's did, Sugar, you know, yeah. I did you know, dump some money there, get my, <laughs> my gummy bears and all kinds of, you know, good. I love that place. Candy. Yeah. yeah um, you know, so I did, I, I actually, I did my part. I purchased there. I did purchase at Abercrombie for my daughter, you know, um, I had 11 salespeople helping me. I was in the store. I felt very important. <laughs> All right, I'll check the stock price of It's Sugar, see how it's doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> drive it up, drive it up. Exactly. I doubt, I doubt my $14 of gummy bears is really <laughs> the price. But. All right. Lisa Washburn, Galen Devitt, thank you so much for your time today. It's been fun and informative. And um, we, sh we should be both of you um, have a great day. You too. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks. And that is our show for today. Many thanks to Lisa Washburn from MMA and Kaylin Devitt, our senior reporter in Chicago, Illinois. And most of all, thanks to you, our listeners out there who tune in week after week for the latest on distressed mini credits on the Mini Lowdown. Take care, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Mini Lowdown with me, your host, Young Lim. If you want to know more, subscribe to DebtWire.com and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share. Join us next week when we talk about the latest in the municipal bond market.